This episode is brought to you today by Damsel in Defense, a U.S.-based company premiering in personal protection products. Check out our exclusive link at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Damsel in Defense, equipping, empowering, and educating women to protect themselves and their families. Slavery was not unique to the United States. It's a part of almost every nation's history since the beginning of time. Despite how quickly America was able to escalate the commerce of slave labor, thanks in part to the production of cotton, they were actually small players in the grand scheme of slavery. Importing only about 6% of American slaves, America used other means to play an integral role in the history we'd all like to forget, the flesh trade. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. Forced labor was not uncommon. As I mentioned, there have been enslaved people since the beginning of time, and believe it or not, there are enslaved people still. Africans sold off their own people, and Europeans and other cultures saw the value to make immense wealth. The transatlantic slave trade, which began as early as the 15th century, introduced a system of slavery that was commercialized, created by a hierarchy of skin color, and a dependence on human labor. Enslaved people were not seen as people at all, but commodities to be bought, sold, and used. They were expendable. They were easily replaced once their bodies expired. The idea and implementation of slavery had been introduced to the colonies in 1619 when colonist John Rolfe wrote to Sir Edwin Sandys of the Virginia Company, that a Dutch man-of-war ship arrived in the colony and, quote, brought not anything but twenty and odd Negroes, which the governor and Cape Merchant bought for victuals, end quote, meaning the governor of the colonies traded the merchants for these twenty docile humans for food and supplies. This is the first record of slaves. Colonists had indentured servants, both black and white, with end terms to their labors, most of these had traded the price of their voyage or paid off loans, debts, or even crimes by signing on to a work-off-their-debt through servitude. By the late 18th century, 100,000 African people are captured and sold into slavery every year. America hasn't even fought for its own liberties yet. By the time the Revolutionary War comes to a close and America is its own nation in 1776, 7.5 million have been deported as slaves from Africa. Between 1619, with the first 20, to 1808, when the transatlantic slave trade came to an end, 388,000 men, women, and children had been sold to North America. The transatlantic slave trade was essentially the capture, shipping, and sale of African men, women, and children. In the colonies, even before America acquired it, 
New Orleans, Louisiana became the hub for the slave trade as early as 1719. Its ease and access to the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico made it the largest port for bringing slave labor in and exporting goods out. South Carolina, though, out of all the states, seemed to glut themselves on the purchase of slaves. So the white slave owners became the minority, and an uprising was feared, which did happen, a bloody but swift uprising that caused the government to step in and at times ban or reduce the amount of slaves that were brought into the states. And along with this, stricter, more harsh laws were formed to give white slave owners dangerous power in their role as owner. In 1787, the delegates from the 13 colonies all gathered in Philadelphia to discuss the Constitution. By this time, many of the states were beginning to bristle at the idea of slaves being brought in and the thought of slave labor in general. During the delegations, the northern states wanted to include that the growth of the institution of slavery would be prohibited. They believed that by pursuing this way of life would be, quote, inconsistent with the principles of the revolution, end quote. The South, however, argued in favor of keeping and growing slave labor, insisting that if the rest of the world could do it, they should be able to do it as well. John Rutledge, a former South Carolina governor, went so far as to say that the Southern states would not sign the Constitution without a clause protecting the slave trade. They had to come up with a compromise. Congress refused to put the words slave, slavery, slave labor, or slave trade within the document, so Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution of the United States reads, quote, The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, end quote. So the importations of slaves was currently allowed, and it did continue to happen, but not very much because the states were trying to recover financially from the recent war. So they actually put into effect self-imposed laws about importing slaves. The South, on its own accord, banished the importation by 1798. But then three things happened. The cotton gin, what started off as a small invention by Eli Whitney, would change the production of the cotton crops forever. As of the 1790s, the growing of cotton was extremely labor-intensive and barely profitable. But when the cotton gin came along, it not only became highly profitable because they could triple to 5x the amount of production, but it also became an international commodity. That was the first thing. The second thing was that the new America acquired Mississippi, which also included what is now Alabama, became part of the states. This new section of land was similar in climate and soil as in the south, and this new acquisition created millions of acres potential for cotton crops. And then third, in 1803, Thomas Jefferson sealed the deal on the Louisiana Purchase. Not only did that give America Louisiana, the largest port, but the opportunity to continue to spread out agriculturally. Suddenly, it seemed that America was in short supply of the required labor force, so after 16 years of mostly quiet ports in 1803, 
the southern states scrambled to acquire as much slave labor as possible, knowing that Congress would shut it down in only four years. And in those last four years, Charleston, more than the others, gorged themselves on the delivery of African slaves. Men, women, and children would be shipped in and sold. The final shipment of slaves came in December of 1807, with the new law going into effect the 1st of January. The northern states belittled and berated their southern brethren in the published pieces, ashamed at their savagery. Charleston merchants didn't care. They overbought on their last shipment, knowing that there wouldn't be another, legally. So several thousand slaves were held back, hoping for an increase in price because of the new demand. Many were not sold for several months later. January of 1808, the new federal law, the transatlantic slave trade, was officially closed and it made human trafficking illegal into this country. It would be better if my story could just end here. Cotton was the leading American export from 1803 to 1937. The mills beginning in Rhode Island and spreading throughout the North expanded quickly to keep up with demand. From 1790 to the time of the Civil War, there were over 2 million spindles in over 1,200 cotton factories and 1,500 woolen factories in the United States. The U.S. mills were consuming 422.6 million pounds of cotton annually by 1860. Britain was able to sign off on the transatlantic slave trade as well, being the most powerful nation and the most financially stable in the world, because they knew they could buy the things they needed without getting their hands dirty, which meant they didn't mind racking up the 80% of slave-produced American cotton as its essential raw material. The term was cotton is king. The business was growing and cotton plantations spread across the South, but in contrast to popular belief, there were not plantations with thousands of workers. In the Lower South, while the majority of slaves lived and worked on cotton plantations, most of these plantations had 50 or fewer slaves, although the largest plantations did have several hundred. Meanwhile, in the East and North, Many farmers were changing up their crops as well. The go-to crop had been tobacco farming. Many crop owners made their fortune with this crop, but it was too extremely labor-intensive. Planters were discovering that wheat crops and other grains were rising in popularity and quite profitable without nearly as much overhead, meaning they needed less slaves. Maryland and Virginia were especially affected with this predicament and they had to decide what to do with this surplus. Having to feed, clothe, and house their labor was cost prohibitive. Many slave owners chose to free their slaves, but more decided to sell them to the cotton plantations down south. Thus began the domestic slave trade, a business in and of itself. The domestic slave trade flourished, and the slave population in the U.S. nearly tripled over the next 50 years. The U.S. slave population increased fourfold. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, 
We'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. The domestic slave trade offered many economic opportunities for white men, not just those who owned plantations. Those who sold their slaves could accumulate great wealth, as could the slave brokers who served as the scouts and middlemen between buyers and sellers. Other white men could benefit from the trade as owners of warehouses and pens in which slaves were held, or as suppliers of clothing and food for slaves on the move. It's hard to imagine how this might have happened when young America was addicted, literally, with having new slaves brought in. You'd think that, on its own, the number would decrease and America, without a war, might figure out another option. So, before I go into exactly how this did not happen, let me give you a bit of historical context as far as slave labor is concerned. Slave labor, as it was used in Brazil and the Caribbean for production of sugar, or mining of gold in South America, the slaves were worked so hard that they literally dropped dead on the line or in the field. The infant mortality rates were in the 90s. They were fed barely enough to keep them functioning and allowed very little sleep. It was extremely physically intensive. They were in the hot sun, sometimes standing in the water. They were susceptible to every disease there was, and they were given no medical treatment or even days off to rest. They were required to work sick. This was par for the course. The slave owners expected this and made sure that they had a steady stream of new workers shipped in regularly. Thousands upon thousands lost their lives every single day. Today, even as tourists and guests relax on the beaches of the Caribbean, they are excavating and documenting the mass graves found mere miles from the fancy tourist hotels. They have found the average age of the skeletons was found at only 24 to 26 years old. In the States, by comparison, the jobs that the slaves had to do were less abusive. The physical job was less intensive. Their bodies didn't break down as fast. The climate was more mild, and for a good portion of time, they had rules that needed to be adhered to because they were property. The rules were those as how you would be directed to treat a horse or other work animal, but in any case, they were given some care if only to extend their usefulness. The law included this, for example, quote, Slaves are property and must, under our present institutions, be treated as such, but they are human beings with like passions, sympathies, and affections with ourselves. End quote. Turner v. Johnson, 1838. Some southern states allowed slaves to have their own homes, grow their own gardens, and have some assemblies including church, sewing bees, and Christmas parties. Unlike the sugar crops and gold slaves, who only had one purpose, the states used their slaves in a variety of jobs. They needed, for example, house servants. These were the people providing services for the master's or the overseer's families. And though their work appeared to be easier than that of the field slaves, in some ways it was not. They were in charge of working closely with their masters and mistresses. Sometimes the full duties of raising the children would fall to them, and they could be called on for service at any time. They handled the running of the household, including the cooking, cleaning, and washing, inventory, 
running of the other workers, and they were personal slaves to the masters and mistresses. They worked from before the family awoke and long after they retired for the night. Their own families were second only to the white family. There were also industry workers, and they would be used in with the skills that they had had, like blacksmiths, boatmakers, horse training, woodworking, and cooking. According to the Library of Congress website, it quotes, Enslaved people of African descent could be found in all parts of the country and put their hands to virtually every type of labor in North America. They tended the wheat fields and fruit orchards of New York and New Jersey. They traveled underground to mine iron and lead in the Ohio Valley. They piloted fishing boats and worked in the docks of New England. They operated printing presses in New York City, dairies in Delaware, and managed households from Florida to Maine. Even in the early 19th century, when the southern cotton plantation system was at its peak, enslaved African Americans still plied their own specialized skills and worked at a wide variety of tasks and trades. End quote. All this to say, they were healthier. They lasted longer. And the ratio between male slaves and female slaves stayed somewhat even. There were exceptions to every rule, and believe me, in my research, I had to sift through all those exceptions that chose extreme cruelty. I'm trying really hard to stick to the facts so I don't cross over into emotion. Not an easy thing to do. The slaves in the States would live and work into their 80s, and the child mortality rate was around 68%. Plainly and simply, fact only, this is what made the domestic slave trade work. Slaves were bought and sold, traded and hired out for the next 60 years. It was primarily the slave system that allowed the new America to grow to financial independence. Even though the buying of slaves was now illegal from Africa, there was no way this human commodity was going to slow down within the borders of the United States. Marcus Redeker of the University of Pittsburgh made this observation, quote, Thomas Jefferson, for example, who advocated closing the slave trade, did so at least in part because he knew that the slaves he was going to sell from his plantations to the new plantation regions would become more valuable with the closing of the slave trade, end quote. Within the major ports such as New Orleans, Richmond, Virginia, Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, a large network of traders purchased slaves and transported them to trade centers and auction houses where they were confined to pens. These pens usually had some sort of buildings or multiple buildings that connected to an open yard. After being held in these facilities, sometimes for weeks at a time, Slaves were auctioned off either one at a time or sometimes by the family. They were sold to plantations, single families, businesses, or often to another trader who would relocate them just to sell them again. The enslaved people were subject to intrusive physical examinations and were asked to perform tasks to prove that they had no physical limitations. Often the slaves had no idea they were going to be sold off, no chance to say goodbye to their families sometimes being separated from a family member or spouse, most likely to never see them again. Most of our attention for this episode takes place in the South, but make no mistake, there were also slave auctions happening in New York City, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. 
The economics of slavery and the increase it brought in revenue affected bankers, insurance agents, mortgage brokers, and slave traders, the financial foundation of our nation's economy. Slaves were bought, sold, mortgaged. They were gifted and deeded and left to families in their wills. They were itemized, inspected, and documented. They were considered real estate or property the way horse and cattle would be. They were hired out to increase their worth, sold to pay off debts, worked longer and harder to make sure that they were getting their investments worth, and everyone got their cut. The local government presided over court judgments, cities created taxes and laws, slave tags were sold by the city, and slaves had to wear them when they left their plantation to go elsewhere for any reason. So, everyone was profiting from the institution of slavery. The slave auctions held in the United States of America are part of some of its darkest times. This is the part of the episode where I should warn you that a few things mentioned may get uncomfortable, so if you feel these things might affect you, this is your jumping off point. I tried to keep it lean, but some accounts are very painful. So no hard feelings, I'll meet you at the end. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. It was the talk of the town. Spectators anxious to be part of this monumental event bought out hotel rooms weeks before it happened. They came from as far as Louisiana and Virginia responding to ads seen in the papers. The entire city of Savannah, Georgia was abuzz with the news of the largest sale of men, women, and children. So large, in fact, it couldn't be held in Savannah's Johnson Square. Only the 10 Barrett Racecourse would be large enough to accommodate all who wished to attend. Pierce Butler was a rich and spoiled man. He and his brother John inherited their grandfather's plantation of rice and cotton in the deepest part of Georgia near Darien. About 20 years later, Butler finds himself deep in debt. With his estate turned over to trustees, he was forced to sell off a large portion of his holdings. Of the things he chose to be rid of was his neglected Philadelphia mansion that he turned into a boarding house, several of his other properties, and 450 slaves. These slaves had been a part of the grandfather's plantation since its beginning, and he had promised that they would never be separated and in 1857, all but a few were carted off to a racing track in Savannah, Georgia, to be sold in what became the largest slave auction in history. With the rain just starting to fall, and all of America watching, it became known as the Weeping Time. Philadelphia socialite Sidney George Fisher noted of the auction, quote, It's a dreadful affair, however, selling these hereditary Negroes, Families will not be separated, that is to say, husbands and wives, parents and young children, but brothers and sisters of mature age, parents and children of mature age, all other relations, and the ties of the home and long association will be violently severed. It is a monstrous thing to do, yet it is done every day in the South. It is one among the many frightful consequences of slavery, and contradicts our civilization, our Christianity, or republicanism. End quote. 
Mortimer Thompson, a newspaper reporter from the New York Tribune, made the trip down to Georgia to write his take on the event. He watched with his own eyes how the slaves were stuffed into the horse and carriage stalls at the track, and no attention was paid to their comfort. When the auction came to a close and all the humans were sold off, he writes, quote, On the faces of all was an expression of heavy grief. Some appeared to be resigned to the hard stroke of fortune that had torn them from their homes, and were sadly trying to make the best of it. Some sat brooding moodily over their sorrows, their chins resting on their hands, their eyes staring vacantly, and their bodies rocking to and fro, with a restless motion that was never stilled. After the last slave was sold, the two-day rain had finally stopped. Champagne bottles popped in celebration, and Pierce Butler, once again wealthy, made a trip to southern Europe before returning home to Philadelphia. This story was so widely reported, especially by the northern press, and it was needed to stroke the flames that led to the Civil War. But unfortunately, so much had to happen before America got to that point. Dana Ramey Berry explains in her article titled American Slavery, Separating Fact from Myth, quote, Enslaved people were valued at every stage of their lives, from before birth until after death. Slaveholders examined women for their fertility and projected their value of their future increase. As the slaves grew up, enslavers assessed their value through a rating system that quantified their work, and A1 prime hand represented one term used for the first-rate slave who could do most of work in any given day. Their values decreased on a quarter scale from three-fourths hands to one-fourth hands to a rate of zero, which was typically reserved for elderly or indifferent abled bondspeople, end quote. The prices paid for slaves increased every decade, and it was predicted that if not interrupted by a civil war, the sale of slave labor would have increased by 50% by 1890 over the 1860 rate. Two economic factors played a part when determining the price one could hope to sell their slave for. One, the characteristics of the slave with things like age, sex, childbearing capacity, physical condition, temperament, mental capabilities, and skill level. Men who were older or crippled sold for deep discounts, and those who had whipping scars were assumed to be trouble and would usually claim a lower price. And then, two, the conditions of the market the supply of slaves, demand for the products produced by slaves, and then seasonal factors. These things combined with other details would give some kind of rate structure. But in round numbers, what I found, by around 1850, men were being sold from $1,700 to $3,000, and women only slightly less depending on their work status. Was she domestic or work in the fields? Women who were fair-skinned or mulatto were often used as concubines, were considered more valuable, and would sell for a 5% premium. There are complete websites that break down all this stuff to the minutest details. I got in, got the basics, and had to get back out as the content and the continued discussion of it made me nauseous. Henry Bibb was a slave that had escaped to freedom by way of Canada. When he returned, attempting to free his wife and child, he was captured and sent back to his original master, who, in turn, decided to sell his family as a whole, 
since no one would buy him singly because they knew he was a runaway. He tells his story, quote, Every day at 10 o'clock, they were exposed for sale. Everyone's head had to be combed and their faces washed, and those who were inclined to look dark and rough were compelled to wash in greasy dishwater to look slick and lively. When spectators would come into the yard, the slaves were ordered out to form a line. They were made to stand up straight and look as sprightly as they could, and when they were asked a question, they had to answer it as promptly as they could and try to induce the spectators to buy them. If they failed to do this, they were severely paddled after the spectators were gone. The object for using the paddle in the place of a lash was to conceal the marks which would be made by flogging, and the object for flogging under such circumstances is to make the slaves anxious to be sold. Kidnapping free men, women, and especially children was big business. While some sites say it was as few as 2% of the slaves, that's still a pretty big number. But it also gives you an idea of just how lucrative the selling of one human being to another really became. Jacob Van Wickle, a judge in New Jersey who, along with a few collaborators, perpetrated one of the most infamous slave-selling schemes in the state's history selling off over 137 enslaved people in 1818 by kidnapping and coercion. At the time, New Jersey was moving to end slavery and showed their progress with less than 10% for the state. State law held that children born to an enslaved woman were free, but had to remain in the service of their mother's owners until they became adults. For women, that was 22 years of age, and for men, it was 24. There were two loopholes, however. First, if the mothers were sold, the child's enslavement could be temporarily extended. Second, enslaved people could be moved from the state and remain enslaved so long as they gave their consent. Van Wickle used these loopholes and his authority to create false documents stating that these women agree to sign away their free children to slavery in New Orleans or he would have people go out and kidnap free slaves and would then, in turn, send them off to his son-in-law's plantation to be sold. He apparently held them hostage in his own home until transportation could be acquired. He was eventually caught after the slave ring was effective for nine months, but he nor any of his accomplices were ever held accountable or punished. Josiah Henson was born into slavery in Maryland. At the death of his master, his mother and five siblings were auctioned off. He never saw his brothers or sisters again. In his own words, he tells of his memory. Quote, the crowd collected round the stand, the huddling group of Negroes, the examination of muscle, teeth, the exhibition of agility, the look of the auctioneer, the agony of my mother. I can shut my eyes and see them all. My brothers and sisters were bid off first, and one by one, while my mother, paralyzed by grief, held me by the hand. Her turn came, and she was bought by Isaac Riley of Montgomery County. Then I was offered to the assembled purchasers. My mother, half distracted with the thought of parting forever from all of her children, pushed through the crowd while the bidding for me was going on to spot where Riley was standing. She fell at his feet and clung to his knees, entreating him in tones that a mother only could command to buy her baby as well as herself, and spare her at least one of her little ones. 
Will it, can it be believed that this man thus appealed to was capable not merely of turning a deaf ear to her supplication, but of disengaging himself from her with such violent blows and kicks as to reduce her to the necessity of creeping out of his reach and mingling the groan of a bodily suffering with the sob of a breaking heart. As she crawled away from the brutal man, I heard her sob. I must have been between five and six years old. I seem to see and hear my poor weeping mother now. End quote. Women within their childbearing years could be sold at a higher price because of their ability to produce children, making an instant profit for the slave owner, whether he chose to keep the child or sell the child, and it was the master's choice to make. The mother had no say. The laws of the time ensured that any children born to an enslaved woman became property of the slave owner. Many enslaved women were also regularly raped, and there were no laws to protect them. And if they were to produce children because of the union, it too belonged to the slave owner. And the child, whether the child was a member of the plantation's family or not, was still considered property. It is believed this is where the largest demographic of mulatto children stems from. Solomon Northup, a free man who was kidnapped and sold into slavery in 1841, has this segment to tell. Quote, the little fellow was made to jump and run across the floor and perform many other feats, exhibiting his activity and condition. All the time the trade was going on, Eliza was crying aloud and wringing her hands. She besought the man not to buy him unless he also bought herself and Emily. Freeman turned around to her savagely with his whip and uplifted hand, ordering her to stop her noise or he would flog her. He would not have such work, such sniveling and unless she ceased that minute, he would take her to the yard and give her a hundred lashes. Eliza shrunk before him and tried to wipe away her tears, but it was all in vain. She wanted to be with her children, she said, the little time she had to live. All the frowns and threats of free man could not wholly silence the afflicted mother. End quote. Men of around the age of twenty-five were considered the most valuable. Gray hairs were plucked out or dyed, and skin was oiled. If the slave had any scars or marks, they could sometimes be filled in with wax. Even their teeth would be oiled to make them shine and look healthy. They were given nice, clean clothes to wear, water to wash with, and their hair had to be combed neat or for the women hidden under a scarf. Slaves were usually divided by sex and lined up by height on the selling platform. The taller the man, the higher the price, as height was associated with health. Sometimes, in my research, I would find they would try to sell the weaker specimens first to ensure that they would sell, but depending on the buyers, their time was valuable so they would sell the marked-up, higher-priced slaves first, knowing that they could take any slave that didn't sell and either hold on to them for another date, or sell them at another location, or even sell them to slave traders and break even. And it was important that the brokers and traders made the slaves look their best, so, the opposite was true that they were whipped or beaten at the slave house. Damage was still inflicted in the most heinous of ways, but they did everything they could not to mark up the merchandise. Henry Bibb explains the use of the paddle. Quote, the paddle is made of a piece of hickory timber, one about one inch thick, three inches in width, and about 18 inches in length. The part that is applied to the flesh is bored full, of quarter-inch auger holes, and every time this is applied to the flesh of the victim, 
the blood gushes through the holes of the paddle or a blister makes its appearance. The persons who are thus flogged are always stripped naked and their hands tied together. They are then bent over double. Their knees are forced between their elbows and a stick is put through between the elbows and the bend of the legs in order to hold the victim in that position, while the paddle is applied to those parts of the body which would not be so likely to be seen by those who wanted to buy slaves. End quote. And Henry Watson remembers the day he was auctioned off at the age of eight. He was initially purchased by a slave trader who would walk them to another location to be put up for sale again. Quote, each one of the traders has private jails, which are kept for the purpose of keeping slaves in, and they are generally kept by some confidential slave. Denton had one of these jails to which I was conducted by his trusty slave, and on entering I found a great many slaves there waiting to be seen off as soon as their numbers increased. These jails are enclosed by a wall about 16 feet high, and the yard room is for the slaves to exercise in and consists of but one room, in which all sexes and ages are huddled together in mass. I stayed in this jail but two days when the number was completed. I was not sold for several weeks, though I wished to be the first, not wishing to witness his cruelty to his slaves any longer. For if they displeased him in the least, he would order them to be stripped and tied hand and foot together. Then he would have his paddle brought. The instrument of torture he would apply until the slave was exhausted, on parts which the purchaser would not be likely to examine. This mode of punishment is considered one of the most cruel ever invented, as the flesh protrudes through these holes at every blow and forms bunches and blisters of the size of each hole, causing much lameness and soreness to the person receiving them. The punishment generally is afflicted in the morning before visitors come to examine the slaves. Just before the doors are opened, it is usual for the keeper to grease the mouths of the slaves so as to make it appear that they are well and hearty and have just done eating fat meat, though they seldom, if ever, while in custody of the keeper, taste a morsel of meat of any kind. End quote. This piece is told by William W. Brown, who was a slave that was forced to drive the boat and assist while his owner would go out and collect, for he was a slave trader. He says, quote, In the course of eight or nine weeks, Mr. Walker had his cargo of human flesh made up. There was in this lot a number of old men and women, some with gray locks. I had to prepare the old slaves for market. I was ordered to have the old men's whiskers shaved off and the gray hairs plucked out, where they were too numerous in which he had a preparation of blacking to color it, and with a blacking brush we would put it on. This was new business to me and it was performed in a room where passengers could not see us. These slaves were also taught how old they were by Mr. Walker, and after going through the blacking process, they looked 10 to 15 years younger. End quote. He goes on to explain where the slaves go prior to being seen by the potential buyers. He says, quote, The Negro pen is a small yard surrounded by buildings from 15 to 20 feet wide, with the exception of a large gate with iron bars. The slaves are kept in the buildings during the night and turned out into the yard during the day. After the best of the stock was sold at private sale at the pen, the balance were taken to the Exchange Coffee House auction rooms, kept by Isaac L. McCoy and sold at public auction. They knew when Walker was expected as he always had the time advertised beforehand when he would be in Rodney, Natchez, and New Orleans. 
These were the principal places where he offered his slaves for sale. Before the slaves were exhibited for sale, they were dressed and driven out into the yard. Some were set to dancing, some to jumping, some to singing, and some to playing cards. This was done to make them appear cheerful and happy. My business was to see that they were placed in those situations before the arrival of the purchasers, and I have often set them to dancing when their cheeks were wet with tears. As slaves were in good demand at the time, they were soon all disposed of, and we set out again. End quote. Prices of slaves varied widely over time due to factors including supply, the changes in prices of commodities such as cotton, and even considering the relative expense of owning and keeping a slave, slavery was considered profitable. Fanny Campbell wrote in her book, Journal of a Residence on a Georgia Plantation, quote, I have sometimes been haunted with the idea that it was an imperative duty, having seen what I have seen, to do all that lies in my power to show the dangers and evils of this frightful institution, end quote. Fanny Campbell, coincidentally, was married to Pierce Butler, the man who sold all of his 400-something slaves in one go. She had visited the plantation, not having any idea of what happened there. She met with the slaves and saw where they lived, and even though her husband told her that they received the best care and housing and were treated very well, she saw with her own eyes that that wasn't the case. Her memoirs are heart-wrenching and depict what we today would consider impossible. She was unable to publish her journals until 1863 due to divorce agreements. They were divorced in 1849, but when she had heard he was selling his slaves, she knew that it was time. Between 1790 and 1859, slaveholders in Virginia alone sold more than half a million slaves. By 1860, it's estimated that Southerners owned close to four billion dollars worth of slaves, that more than 200,000 slaves per decade from 1820 to 1860 moved from the upper states to the lower states via sales. In Virginia, Maryland, South Carolina, and North Carolina, and elsewhere in the South, slave auctions happened every day. A shift, however, was on the horizon. It became more and more vocalized, especially when Missouri became a state and they had to decide if it was going to be a free or slaveholding state. It brought the conversations to light. Douglas Egerton, professor of history at Lemoyne College, says, quote, The Missouri debates of 1820 forced the South to explain and articulate reasons why slavery was a good thing, in part because of the growth of the cotton economy. The White South, especially Lower South, South Carolina, Georgia, began to articulate a fairly new idea, which was that slavery was not a bad thing in any way, but that it was a positive good for all concerned, and that it allowed for white American civilization to advance by taking whites out of menial labor. It allowed for Africans to be civilized by bringing them into contact with allegedly superior white culture and the Christian faith, and that was a new idea. Men of Jefferson's generation never tried to pretend that slavery was a good thing for black or white, and certainly Jefferson never had any interest in arguments that there was something civilizing about slavery when it came to Africans. End quote. From the Selling of Joseph by Samuel Seawall in 1700 And seeing God hath said, He that stealeth a man, and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall truly be put to death. 
Exodus twelve sixteen. As a mother of grown daughters and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings. I always let my people know where and when I'm going places. But to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety. And can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So begins the Declaration of Independence, the document that eventually led to the creation of the United States. David W. Blight, Professor of History and Black Studies at Amherst College, offers these thoughts, quote, did the drafters of that document intend to include black people explicitly in the document? Probably not, but that doesn't mean that blacks weren't going to insist that they did. If inalienable rights really exist, then slavery cannot ultimately coexist next to it, or you have to give up those principles. End quote. General Colin Powell gives his thoughts on the Declaration of Independence. Quote, the Declaration of Independence is one of the most remarkable documents in the world, and certainly in the English language or in Christendom. And in just a few words, it captures the essence. You know, inalienable rights. Rights not given to you by the state, but given to you by God, so they can't be taken away. And the purpose of the state is to secure these rights, not to give them to you or tell you what you're supposed to do with them, but to secure those rights for you. What are those rights? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We hold these truths to be self-evident. In other words, you don't have to prove them. It's self-evident. Why is it self-evident? It came from God. They're inalienable. Government secures them. Remarkable document. It didn't apply to black folks. End quote. In 1965, the Civil War had ended. The Emancipation Proclamation had been read, and only 402 years after the 20 and some odd Negroes were sold in Virginia, the 13th Amendment ensured that the country would never again be defined as a slave nation. Frederick Douglass recalls, quote, I shall never forget that memorable night in a distant city I waited and watched at a public meeting with 3,000 others not less anxious than myself for the word of deliverance which we have heard read today. Nor shall I ever forget the outburst of joy and thanksgiving that rent the air when the lightning brought us the Emancipation Proclamation. End quote. American slavery happened, Dana Ramey Berry reminds us. We are still living with its consequences. I believe we are finally ready to face it, learn about it, and acknowledge its significance to American history. End quote. 
Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Bag of Bones. It's true we can't go back and replace history, nor should we try to erase it or gloss over it. It happened. What can we learn from it, and what lessons can we take forward? But if we look through the window of time into the darkness, we can see that this nation and its people went through immense suffering. But it also tapped into such great strength and resilience. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it so they might enjoy it too. If you'd like to leave a five-star rating and review, you can shortcut and go ahead and tell the whole world that you love this podcast in just a few seconds. And if you'd like to help support this adventure so I can keep bringing you these every week, please consider buying me a gallon of gas. It's like Patreon, only more cool. Just click the link in the show notes. As always, I appreciate you being here. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or Type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. Hello.